You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, the podcast that looks back at stories from Oakland, Berkeley, Richmond, and other towns throughout Alameda and Contra Costa County. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Celeste Guap is certainly not the first person who has experienced this. I've had former clients who've told me that this was a thing that happened, that they, you know, they've performed sexual services with law enforcement personnel to find out when police things were going to be happening. That's the voice of Elizabeth C. My name is Elizabeth C., and I'm one of the co-founders of Bantis Rey. The organization she just mentioned, Bantis Rey, is a program for girls in Oakland who are either engaged in the underground sex trade or at high risk for getting involved. The name comes from an ancient temple in Cambodia. It means Temple of Women. The program is specifically focused on Southeast Asian girls, mostly of Cambodian descent, who are around high school age or sometimes even younger. A minute ago, when Elizabeth said she had clients who have been sexually exploited by the police, she was talking about the girls from this program. She also mentioned the name Celeste Guap. This is a complicated story, but in a nutshell, Celeste Guap is a young woman who started engaging in the underground sex trade while she was still a minor. A lot of the details are still being disputed but dozens of Bay Area cops allegedly had sex with her. Some of them allegedly tried to traffic her, in other words, pimp her. And after the East Bay Express broke the story, the chief of the Oakland Police Department resigned. Since then, officers from multiple law enforcement agencies have been investigated, threatened with termination, suspended, and even arrested. Miss Guap, recently filed a $36 million lawsuit against the cities of Richmond and Livermore, so there could potentially be a lot more fallout from the scandal. Back to Elizabeth C. I should mention that she's my wife. We got together around the time she was starting Bontius Ray in 2004, and I remember back then how she would come home from work, totally wrecked. And she would tell me about hearing stories from girls who were... 15, 16, 17 years old, who were coerced, and that's putting it mildly, into having sex with cops for protection. Like what seems to have been the case with Celeste Guap, at least with some of the cops she was involved with. Here's Elizabeth again. Anybody who's been doing this work is not surprised that this happens. What was surprising was the sheer amount of police officers involved, were involved and that the higher-ups in these organizations turned a blind eye to it and that they didn't do anything to intervene. That was a thing that was really appalling. Another thing that was appalling is how Celeste Guap was portrayed by a lot of the media. So much of it boiled down to placing the blame for this scandal on her. And here's the thing. Talking about the issue of minors engaged in the underground sex trade is really difficult, but we can do better because this is a crisis in Oakland, and it has been for a long time. 
I know that many of Celeste's encounters with police happened after she turned 18, but she was underage when this exploitation started. And while Celeste spoke out about what happened to her, most girls never do. And that's one of the reasons why Oakland has long been an epicenter for minors engaged in the sex trade. Because this story is usually in the shadows, but not today. This episode of East Bay Yesterday is going to look at the recent history of Oakland to try to figure out how and why a scandal like this could happen here. And we're going to do it in two parts. First, we're going to zoom in on the experience of one young woman to show how people like her are quote-unquote recruited into the game. And then we're going to zoom out a little to explore an often overlooked factor for why there are so many underage girls out there on the track. Oh, and we're also going to talk about some good stuff, too. Don't worry, this episode isn't all completely depressing. My name's Monica. Okay. Yeah, Monica. Do you, want, you, you don't want your last name? Mm, Monica Hong. That's Monica. She's in her mid-twenties now. She's also a mother of two beautiful children. In fact, you can hear one of her daughters making baby noises on the background of this tape. She was sitting on Monica's lap during part of the interview. But I met Monica back when she was in high school. She was one of the first young women to join Elizabeth's program. Remember when I said that Bontius Ray was designed for girls who are at a high risk of being recruited into the sex trade? Well, I think this story will show you what that really means. I'm just going to set this up by saying that at the time of the story that Monica's about to tell, she was a student at Oakland High. She was living in the San Antonio neighborhood of East Oakland with her mother, who came here in the 80s as a Cambodian refugee. Okay, that's it. Now I'm going to get out of the way and let Monica tell her story, which starts at a bus stop a few blocks from Highland Hospital. I was at the bus stop, Ranabu, just, I was with a friend, he seen us. Bus U-turn, came back around, came up to us and like, dang, y'all hella pretty, y'all need a ride, all that stuff. And they was like, nah, we're good. And they was like, oh, let me, um, let, let me sit with y'all. And, you know, just kind of comforting us and um, to making sure that we were straight and that to make sure that no dudes was going to mess with us or try to rob us or anything like that and make sure we got on our bus. Uh, the meantime is just, you know, he was he was actually hella cool. Just the bus took hella long that day. It was a weekend. And uh, he was hella cool. And then we switched numbers. We exchanged numbers. And one day we hit, we were hungry and we had no money. And we decided to hit him up. He came through in a heartbeat. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, we're going to go eat thang long. Some crab and garden noodles, whatever it is. Like, yeah, I got y'all and all that stuff. And he came through, picked us up. And then when we when he picked us up, he was just like making sure we was comfortable. He's like, y'all want some drill? Y'all y'all want some trees? Y'all drink? Y'all y'all want some cigarettes? Whatever? Y'all take pills? Whatever it is, I got y'all. Don't trip. This is y'all day. Um, making us feel real comfortable, real special. I already kind of knew like he like he. I think back then they were like I don't think anybody would want to just trick just to trick. Like I think he wants something. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I already had that in my mind. I didn't say nothing yet because I was in the back seat. 
things didn't go as planned. His car caught on fire on the bridge. So then, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we had to cancel the dinner reservation. We had to cancel whatever it is. And um, he was like, yeah, man, thank you. My friend came brings up. He was like, thank you, man, blah, blah, blah. Um, I didn't hear from my friend. And usually she's the type of friend where, like, I talk to every day. I didn't hear from her. I called her. She doesn't even have a cell phone. She's not home. Calling morning, day, night, whatever it is. So finally she called me and then she said she hung out with him and she's been hanging out with him and she was like, oh, he's hella sweet. He got her nails done, she got her hair done and he took them shopping. I'm like, them? And she's like, yeah. So I guess like another girl that was our friend, she went to go kick it with. So I guess she was with her and they were together and then they ended up kicking it with him. And then she's like, yeah, me and her. And um, he did it for both of us. I said, for real? I said, and y'all didn't, y'all didn't fuck him? Like, you know what I'm saying? So, and she's like, no, we did nothing. Like, you know, and I was like, oh, so you think he gonna do that for me? And whatever, you know, it was just like, wow, he, he did all that for y'all. Like maybe he really just nice and he didn't want to have sex with y'all or nothing, he didn't want nothing out of y'all. He was like, yeah, she's like, yeah, he'll do it. You just gotta ask him. I was like, all right. She said, come over, we got this address, blah, blah, blah. So I, caught, I got ready, caught, hopped on a bus, went over there. He lived in a nice-ass area. Like, he lived in Lake Merritt area. So I, when I got there, he was in a the shower. They were there. They were showing me all the stuff that he got them and their nails done. And, you know, we had no money back then. Like I said, we hit them up because we was hungry. <laughs> so it's like, all of that was like, wow. Like, oh, my God, I hella want it, especially coming from, like, Mom, we were hella poor. Being hella poor and being a teenager in high school, like it was a lot of pressure just trying to keep up with everything. Like you didn't want to be the one that everybody made fun of or like she only have one pair of shoes or she have no clothes. I guess that was just the mindset we had back then. He came out, I asked him, can he get my nails done and all that stuff too, and I want some clothes too. And he was like, yeah, he was like, yeah, let me talk to you for a little bit. So he started talking to me and then he was just telling me how pretty I was. And like, you know, he was just kind of giving me every detail about myself. All the like good things about like the shape of my body, my eyes, the shape of my eyes, and then like how pretty I was, this and that, and how I'm hella cool. and. He was being around the bush about it. I already knew what he was trying to get at. Like, he want me, he, I'm hella pretty, and he want me to do something for him. And he was just like, oh, because he, he started asking me about, like, my dreams and how, you know, how am I getting money, how am I getting around, and who's providing me all these supplies of all the weed I smoke. <laughs> and then, like, you know, just, like, just really trying to get all this information about me. And I answered it to him, and then... He was just like, yeah, you know, like, someone like you, like, could be making hella money. Like, why, why are you worried about school when school is not going to, like, get you anywhere? He started, he know people that go to school still ain't doing shit with themselves and hella shit. And then I was just kind of, he, I was giving him, like, a smart mouth, basically. So he got irritated. And he was like, you know what, a pretty girl like you, you know how much money you'll make a night and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, I said, I know I'm pretty. And, um, no, I'm not like that or whatever. So he got kind of frustrated, so he got straight to the point. He was like, a girl pretty like you make five bands a night. Hey. 
Sorry to pause the story, but I'm just jumping in real quick to let any listeners who are confused know that a band is $1,000. So this guy was saying that she could make about 5000 a night. Okay, back to Monica's story. He was like, so what's up? Like, you know, like, you ready? You, you know, like, you might as well do something. Like, you might as well get some money. Like, don't you want to have a nice-ass car, nice purse, nice clothes, and have the stuff like that? And, like, why you got to, like, stress about have, not having money? Or, like, why you got to go through all that? You know, like, it just only makes sense for you to get some money. Like, make money for yourself and be independent, be an entrepreneur. I was just like, no, like, no, um, I'm not like that. I just kept saying I'm not like that. He was like, but what do you mean, like, you're not like that? He was just saying everything to kind of, like, get me to do it. My friends that um, was there, they kind of, like, started, like, leaving me alone with him. So I kind of figured, like, they got me to come there because he wanted me there. Because she wasn't answering none of my phone calls. or She wasn't, you know, she wasn't that. She didn't call me, not answer my phone calls. She didn't call me like how she would used to. Then out of nowhere, she called me to come over. And this is the conversation I have to have with him. You know, so it just, you could tell it was just a setup. So then, and they were supposedly my friends. Uh, then he pulled out the gun. He pulled out the gun and he put the gun in front of me. It was a Glock, I remember. He was like, won't you touch it? Touch the gun. I was like, nah, I'm good. Because my brother always just tell me, like, don't ever touch nobody's gun because your fingerprints will be on it and then you're going to go to jail and heck of stuff. So I was just remember, I just, that just kept going in my mind. I'm like, I'm not going to touch nobody's gun. And then he was just like, touch the gun. Don't you want to feel powerful? Like, don't you want to, like, you know, feel power? Like, I was just like, no, I know how to, I, I, I touched a gun before. I picked up a gun before. And then he was like, well, touch this one. He was like, just pick it up. Just touch it. You ever touch the Glock? Like, or whatever. And I was like, no, um, I, I don't want to, whatever. And he just kept trying to force me to touch the gun or pick up the gun. And I was just like, nah. And then, um, luckily, the phone rang and someone called him. And then right when that happened, he walked up to get the phone and I ran out. Like, as soon as he walked to get the phone, and the apartment's kind of small, like, I instantly ran out. He dropped the phone, or I don't know what happened. He grabbed the gun and he chased me around his apartment. He lived on second floor. I remember he had like this little garden in the middle. Like, you have to go around in order to get out to the exit. So then he chased me throughout the whole second floor with a gun. I must have like, I, I, I thought I was flying down them stairs. Like, you know, you're running so fast, you start gliding. <laughs> like, that's how, because I just felt like, <laughs> I just felt like if, if he were, if he catch me, that's it. Like, he's already chasing me with a gun. So he chased me all the way till I got out, and I ran all the way across the street, then he yelled, and I turned around and looked at him, and then he was just like, he was like, I'm going to get you, Monica. He was like, I'm going to get you, girl. He was like, one way or another, I'm going to get you. So then um, I was hella scared. So then I don't know what happened. I forgot, but I think I used a liquor store phone or somebody to call her. I'm like, y'all need to get out of there. Y'all need to get out of there. He tried, he fucking chased after me with a gun. And y'all like y'all tripping. Y'all slipping right now. Um, y'all need to get out of there. He he a pimp, bruh. He a pimp. And then... She, and then they responded, he's just playing with you. Like, come back, come back. He's just playing with you. He ain't gonna shoot you. Like, you hella tripping, you hella high right now. I was like, no, the fuck I'm not. Like, what the fuck? Like, he started asking me hella questions and shit. And he, then he got straight to it about how I should fucking basically work for him. 
and then uh, she was like, just come back, just come back. He just playing with you. He, he gonna put the gun away. He just come back or whatever. And I was like, nah, I'm good. I'm about to go home. I hope you took a minute to catch your breath there because Monica's story is about to get even crazier. So she got out of the pimp's apartment, but flash forward a few weeks and something really bad happens. She's walking home and she's spotted by a car full of the girls who quote unquote work for that pimp, including her former friend, the one who lured Monica into coming to his apartment before. Okay, I'll let Monica take it from there. I was walking on 23rd, I was hella lit. And then um, I was like, I gotta go home, I gotta go sleep. I don't know what the hell I gotta do, I just gotta go home. I seen like a car roll by with hella girls in there and they busted, a, they turned, they hella looked at me and then they busted a U-turn and they came back around and this girl came out and she was like, you know, blah, 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 his name, right? And I was like, who? She was like, my daddy. And then I was like, what? And then my friend, the friend was in that car too and she came out she's laughing and then the girl's coming up to me hella sideways like oh so you stole five bands five racks from my daddy and all that shit and i was just like what i said who's your dad and then she's like my daddy bitch my daddy bitch and i was just all like i'm really thinking in my mind like who is her dad like right like her real dad <laughs> so then like i'm just like she was like my fucking daddy bitch duh, duh, duh. don't act like you don't fucking know bitch i'm gonna beat your ass and all that stuff and i was like i don't know who your dad is like and it's just and then she stated his name or whatever and then i was just like oh i was just like i didn't take nothing from him like and then stop lying bitch da, da, da. you hit his house and all that shit i was like what and then there's like give me all your jewelry and hella shit so they started snatching hella shit they snatched my necklace they took all my jewelry and hella shit like hell of them like it was hell of them they just started stripping me and then they was like, you about to, you either give me back this five bands or you about to get on a track and make this five bands. She was like, what you want to do? I was like, I ain't got five bands and I didn't take five bands from him. And then uh, we were just going back and forth for a minute. And then next thing you know, they started grabbing me. They started dra trying to drag me in the car. Like it was hella, it was probably like three girls trying to drag me in the car and they couldn't even do it because I had one leg out. I had one leg out, like, outside the car door, and then they kept pushing me inside. But I just, I fought for my life. But then they, um, I just kept telling myself, if I get in this car, it's over. Sorry to pause the story again, but I just wanted to jump in with another little vocab lesson. The track that Monica just referred to is the street where Johns come to pick up sex workers and minors engaged in the sex trade. In Oakland, this has often been International Boulevard, but the track can float around to different streets, depending on where the cops are cracking down or looking the other way. I'm going to fast forward a tiny bit in Monica's story. So Monica escaped the attempt to drag her into the car, but the other girls chased after her. Monica starts fighting with one of the girls and is starting to win, but then the other girls jump in. They all jumped me, they all got on me, and then they were still trying to get me in, and then these other pimps came through. These other pimps came through that always see me walking on 23rd, 
they they call me Alicia Keys because I used to call uh, I used to get my hair braided like every day. They said Alicia Keys, Alicia Keys, and then they helped me out and they was like, you okay, Alicia Keys? Like you okay? But they were pimps though. I already knew that. And then um, I was like, yeah. I said they they took all my jewelry. And then he walked up to the he walked up to me. He was like, check this out. Y'all hoes bet y'all hoes gonna give me back them jewelry. This like what jewelry? We ain't got no jewelry. So he pulled out the gun and he started he started shooting it in the air. He was like, bitch, you gonna give me the motherfucking jewelry? Like all that shit. And then they gave it to him. He said, like, you think I'm playing with y'all hoes? Da, 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 da. I know who the fuck I know who the fuck y'all are and hella shit and. And then uh, they was like, why the fuck you helping her for? She ain't shit. And then uh, he was like, give me her fucking jewelry. And they gave it back to me. And then he was like, that's everything, Alicia Keys. And then I was just like, yeah. So they put me in their car. But I was just iffy. I was just like, fuck. I just needed to get away from them, the other ones. So they tried to calm me down. They bought me some alcohol. They calmed me down. And then... Um, they was like, what happened, Alicia Key? Why they beat you up? Like, why they do that shit to you? And I was like, they were trying to get me to fucking go on the track and shit. Like, I was just telling them. And remind you, they just see me walking every day. They don't even know me personally. Never even hung out with them or nothing. So then uh, they was like, they shady. He was like, man, them, them some hoes. Them some hoes. So then they started following us. They, the, the other girls, they started following us. They was chasing us around. So then he had to stop the car and he had to shoot the gun again. And then that's when they went around. Yep. After that situation, they, they dropped me off. They was like, here, Alicia. He was like, here, Alicia, can you just drink some alcohol and smoke a blunt? And then he was like, we're going to take you home. Don't worry. So Monica escaped again. But the pimp and his girls still weren't done trying to get her. Monica told me that they started coming to her school to find her. So she stopped going to school. She said that this went on for months. I asked her why she thought this crew was putting so much effort into tracking her down, and her answer is pretty bonkers. Remember how when she got jumped last time, one of the girls accused her of stealing 5000 from the pimp? Yeah, that's because her former friend, the one that had invited her over to the pimp's house, set her up. Come to find out, it was because that friend robbed her own pimp was just the dude, and she blamed it on me. She stole $5,000 from him, and she blamed it on me because I've been to that house once, that one time. So it made sense. And he was like, oh, Monica, she's known for hitting houses. She know how to do that shit and all that stuff like that. So then, yeah, they came looking for me. But then, yeah, it was really hard. It was just a whole lot of stress with the whole school. And then, like, damn, even if I wanted to go to school, I can't even because I feel like Everybody's just out for me, like fuck. Like it's either someone talking shit about me or they're fucking trying to recruit me. Like I felt like at that moment I wanted to die. This was right around the same time that Elizabeth was starting that program, Bontius Ray, that I mentioned earlier. She designed it for girls in situations like Monica's. Through her connections in the Cambodian community, Elizabeth and Monica met up and Monica started going to Bontius Ray meetings. This was a turning point for Monica. This was when things started getting better for her. Because I started going about this, that made me open up to people again. Because I felt like everybody was just out for me. I felt like I was always something was always happening to me, so I really isolated myself, which made me hella depressed too. Because then I was like, damn, like, is this how my life's supposed to be like? Like, is this all? Is it ever gonna end? Until I joined about this, that's when I felt like. I was able to open up to, to other girls. 
Not only did Monica join the organization, but Elizabeth trained her to have a major role. Within a few years of joining, Monica had a job as a youth leader for Bontius Ray. Now she was the one leading group discussions about healthy relationships and teaching the girls how to make art and connecting them to health and legal services and taking them on camping trips. She doesn't work there anymore, but she's still good friends with many of the other young women she met through the program. Coming to Bontese, just it helped to just kind of like, you know, understanding to love yourself and that you don't need to be going through all that to like get money. There's always a way. Just kind of like opening my eyes. Like there's more to just like hanging out in the street and there's more like, like bike riding, hiking. Like I never did none of that before. Like, you know, I enjoy stuff like that. So that's Monica's story. Well, one of Monica's stories, she actually escaped several other attempted recruitments, including one where she had to climb out the bathroom window of a guy who was trying to kidnap her and take her to a different state. But when it comes to young women engaged in the underground sex trade, everybody's story is different. Some girls want to do it. Some girls are pressured into it by their friends or a quote-unquote boyfriend. Some girls are forced into it. Some girls are tortured. Some girls are killed. But I wanted to share this story, Monica's story, because I think it shows the pressure and the dangers so many young girls face growing up in Oakland. At least the poor parts. In the next part of this episode, I'm going to zoom out and try to figure out why this has been happening here in Oakland for so long. Keep it locked. I'm not going to throw a bunch of statistics at you, but here's one that's pretty stunning. In recent years, nearly half of all prosecuted human trafficking cases involving commercially sexually exploited children in California came from the Alameda District Attorney's Office. In other words, Oakland is one of the biggest hubs of sexually exploited minors in the entire country. And this isn't a new problem here. There are a lot of reasons for this. Part of it is geography. Oakland is right in the middle of a major metropolitan area, and the MacArthur maze makes it easy for Johns coming in from the suburbs to get down to the track and back out of town quickly. You know how in some parts of Oakland, near the freeway on-ramps, there are tons of cheap motels? Those motels are part of the infrastructure that this underground economy relies on. The city will occasionally shut a few of these down, but more will always pop back up. And just quickly, I want to add that this episode isn't about adult sex workers, and I'm not passing any judgment on that front. Another major factor is poverty. When you're poor and you're trying to survive, a lot of people will do whatever it takes. Many people in Oakland are involved in the underground economy in one way or another whether it's basement casinos or illegal grow rooms or whatever, and this helps explain why there's so much violence. When people are getting shot all the time, the cops are more likely to prioritize dealing with murders over 16-year-olds getting pimped on the corner. And I'm definitely not saying that more cops would solve this problem, but I'll get back to that later. So far, all of these reasons are pretty unsurprising, right? Well, 
I think that there are some factors that are far more complicated. Oakland is a city where a lot of people fleeing from wars end up, and one of its biggest communities of immigrant refugees is Southeast Asians. During the Vietnam War and its aftermath, waves of refugees came here from Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The girls involved in Bontius Ray were almost all children of these refugees. For this story, I'm going to focus on Cambodians in particular, because showing how so many Cambodian-American girls ended up engaged in the underground sex trade helps explain why this problem has been such an intractable crisis for Oakland. My name is Denise Tan Agatep, and I'm a advisory board member for Bantes Rey. That's Denise. She used to work for Bantes Rey, and she was born in Highland Hospital two weeks after her parents arrived in Oakland. Her family story is pretty typical for Cambodian immigrants. The Cambodian community first came here in the late um, 70s, early 80s, and many came as refugees. And so, you know, you're looking at a community that has been through a lot of trauma, a lot of, uh, you know, loss. You know, my own family, for example, you know, I never met my maternal um, grandfather or my paternal grandparents because uh, they all died during the war in Cambodia. And... You know, they're, they're, that's very common, you know, for a lot of Cambodian families to have had that type of experience where there were losses of so many family members that were either um, assassinated or were tortured or somehow um, died from the journey, you know, from trying to flee Cambodia. The situation that Denise just described is known as the Cambodian Genocide. In a nutshell, here's how it happened. During the Vietnam War... The U.S. military secretly dropped hundreds of thousands of tons of bombs on Cambodia. This was arguably illegal, since the U.S. never declared war on Cambodia. But the U.S. was trying to take out North Vietnamese forces stationed on the Cambodian side of the Vietnam border. This massive bombing campaign also killed thousands of innocent Cambodians and totally destabilized the country by undermining people's faith in their government and creating widespread displacement. Amidst this turmoil, a revolutionary communist party known as the Khmer Rouge gained power. And what happened next is so horrific that words can only just begin to describe the complete destruction of Cambodian society. If you know anything about the Cambodian genocide, the first image that probably pops into your head when you hear those words is an enormous pile of human skulls. Those iconic images of fields just covered in human bones are the result of what happened after the Khmer Rouge took over. They forced all Cambodians out of the cities and into rural labor camps. Well, first they assassinated all their political enemies, which included anybody who wore glasses because they were considered intellectuals and thus a threat. And then they separated families because they wanted to demolish society and rebuild it from the ground up. And then they put people to work, harvesting rice, building dams, and manifesting the leader Pol Pot's twisted vision of utopia. Between 1975 and 1979, 
roughly 2 million Cambodians died, around a quarter of the country's population. This was the hell the Cambodians coming to Oakland were escaping. So Tevi Tan is one of those Cambodians who fled from the Khmer Rouge to Oakland. She's also Denise's mom. For a long time, she was a mental health care professional, mostly working with other Cambodian refugees. But three years ago, she quit her job. She just couldn't take it anymore. She couldn't keep reliving the trauma. She explained to me why it's so hard for Cambodians living in Oakland to heal, to move on with their lives, and put the violence of living under the Khmer Rouge behind them. Living in Oakland is another war zone too. You hear it's a gunshot, you hear it's a battle fighting, you hear those all the time. So Tavi speaks quietly. So if you didn't catch that, she said that living in Oakland is like living in a war zone. Hearing gunshots constantly and seeing all the fighting, it terrifies people. It's like reopening a wound over and over. And it's not just seeing and hearing the violence. So Tavi also told me that most of the Cambodians she worked with were victims of violence themselves. They don't have a peace here in Oakland. They've been snapped, uh, they've been robbed. Most of them experience all of that. And then each time they rob, those trigger their trauma. And they, they say they don't have a peace here either. Even in front of their house, some people would be gunshot in front of their house. So it, it's very, very unsafe and very sad. But well, what can you do? When Sotevi got to Oakland, her first job was with a public health agency. She was hired to educate Cambodian refugees about family planning. This turned out to be an impossible job. First of all, back home in Cambodia, people had really big families. Sotevi told me it was common for couples to have six or seven kids because people lived on farms. So you could just let your kids run around in the fields and then when they got old enough, you had extra labor to help plant and harvest the crops. So having a lot of kids was normal. It's just what people did. But there was another reason why people didn't want to listen to Sotevi when she was advising them about birth control. It's really difficult that time because after the war, they would just thought that they lost so much, they want a big family. They don't believe in family planning because they say that we lost all my family, we want my family back. Because you remember, because back home, we have a big family. And then suddenly, the people killed them, they only have small family. And then they ran to separate, and then they don't know who lives, who die. In case you didn't catch that, she said that after Pol Pot, the leader of the Khmer Rouge, killed their relatives, they just wanted to have a family again. They saw having lots of kids as a way of rebuilding what they lost. But it didn't really work out the way they wanted 
because there turned out to be a huge cultural barrier between the refugee parents' generation and their American kids. Here's Monica again. For me, I feel like with my mom, I don't know about other people, but I think like her being raised differently in like a whole different world, um, different country, going through different struggles. And I feel like from this day, she can't really relate to the American lifestyle. Or like she's basically, I, I be telling folks like, she lives in America, but her mind is still in Cambodia. This is a common struggle in every immigrant community the disconnect between parents who grew up with one set of values and kids growing up in a completely different world. But there are a few reasons why this division was even more extreme for Cambodians. First of all, the parents' generation was still deeply, deeply traumatized. What this meant is that a lot of them didn't want to leave the house. They isolated themselves emotionally and physically because it was just too painful to talk about what had happened to them. Monica, for example, didn't know until she was about 20 that her mom had three kids before her. She never knew that she had three older siblings who all died during the genocide. Think about that from the mom's point of view. If your first three children all died horrible deaths, would you ever really recover from that enough to make yourself 100% vulnerable again? To truly open your heart, knowing what it feels like to have your heart ripped out and to lose everything? Even if they did want to communicate, that was a challenge too. Because many of the parents only spoke Cambodian, and the kids, English. They literally couldn't talk to each other. My wife, Elizabeth, she's the youngest of 10 kids. She was the only one in her family born outside of Cambodia or a refugee camp. She speaks Cambodian pretty well, but really communicating with her mom can still be a challenge sometimes. Before we got married, Elizabeth told me that her mom would never say, I love you. It bothered her, but she thought it was just a cultural thing. But then, when I interviewed Sotevi, I learned that this taboo on saying I love you is so much deeper. One time we was talking about uh, uh, why I love you, all this stuff. And then I say, oh, you know what? In Khmer uh, you cannot say you love, I love you. Sotevi told me that love was mostly forbidden by the Khmer Rouge. Children were taken away from their parents. And if couples were discovered, they would be separated. The woman might be forced to marry a soldier instead. Or maybe she, or both of them, would be executed. In other words, being caught saying, I love you, could be a death sentence. Before I heard this story from Sotevi, Elizabeth didn't know about this. And neither did Monica. Maybe it's just kind of like making sense now, just like how my mom never told me. She never said she loved me, even from this very day. But it's like, I know she loves me. But And I remember struggling with Elizabeth. Like, she don't love me. She don't love me. She never told me she loved me. And I remember Elizabeth just didn't really know how to, like, respond to that situation either. It's just like, except, like, I'm pretty sure she loves you. She cares for you. Everybody shows love differently or whatever it is. I'm like, but she never told me she loved me. She don't fucking love me. And on top of that, we don't have a relationship. She don't give a fuck about me. Like, you know, I remember just, I hate her. I hate her. Whew. 
don't jump out that window just yet. This particular chapter of the story actually has a happy ending. In Elizabeth's case, she decided to improve her language skills by taking a class in Khmer. That's Cambodian at UC Berkeley. She thought that maybe her mom always refused to say, I love you, because Elizabeth didn't really know the right way to ask for it. And Elizabeth also realized that she needed to express her love and appreciation for her mom in a language that her mom could understand. So she takes this language class, improves her Khmer, and for the final project, writes a letter telling her mom how much she loves her. When I got home, I was really excited to give her this letter. I had it in my bag and dropped my bags off, went, decided to take a shower, get out of the shower, and then I see my mom had gone through my bags, probably looking for weed, who knows what, and she has a letter and it's open on her lap and she's on the bed and she's just sobbing and reading that. So I sat down on the bed with her and I was like, okay, mom, so now that I've told you all the ways in which I love you, I want to ask you to tell me that you love me. And her response was, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. No, I can't. Many people don't say that. So we had to say it together. I was just like, okay, okay. I was like, just say I. And she was like, I. And I was like, love. She was like, love. No, 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 no. And I was like, mom, you just have to string three words together. And it probably took me 15 minutes to pry it out of her. But she finally said, I love you to me. Elizabeth's mom says, I love you all the time now. She even says it to me. It's really adorable. And Monica, she's come to understand that her mom expresses her love in different ways. Now that I'm older, I learned that she loves me by working her ass off every day to try to like figure out how she gonna pay this electricity bill because you know it went out last month and we was just lighting candles mm -hmm. or she loves me by like you know like she like she was waking up five in the morning walk to BART to hop on BART all the way to Pacifica to babysit some kid and then come back like one in the morning walking back from BART all the way from 22nd Fruitvale is pretty long time and she's walking alone like because we had no car and it just made me understand like she loves me in a different way and I think um, yeah Another really important reason why so many Cambodian girls end up in Oakland's underground sex trade is the basic economic formula of supply and demand. According to Denise, these girls are what the market demands. There was kind of this increased demand for um, young Southeast Asian girls. There was just really this this increased demand where Johns were willing to pay um, more for a younger girls, but also for girls that were of Southeast Asian background. And so, so they were specifically targeted because of those reasons as well. When she says targeted, she means targeted by pimps trying to get new girls. If a pimp knows he can make more money exploiting a 15-year-old Cambodian girl, that's who he's going to put the most effort into recruiting. And besides the economics of exotification, there's one more big reason. This part of my conversation with Sotevi will help explain it. 
Do you think people in this community like see the police as helping them and being on their side? Or do you think most Cambodian people in Oakland are like scared of the police? Yeah, they scare of the police. Yeah. Why yeah. why is that? Can you talk can you talk a little bit about that? I guess because it's reminding them of the soldier, the war or something. Like during during the yeah. Khmer Rouge. Yeah. yeah. Even if they a Cambodian family knows that maybe their daughter is being like pimped, they wouldn't go to the police because they're scared. Yeah. Just in case you didn't catch that. She said that the police remind Cambodian people of soldiers, like the kinds of soldiers who murdered their families. They don't go to the police because they're scared of them. They don't trust them. And it's not just the older generation. Monica told me this story to explain why young folks of any ethnicity, not just Cambodian, don't consider going to the cops either, even when they're being sexually exploited. This is what happened to one of Monica's relatives when she was being arrested. The police came and, you know, they know her, like, her little background. She got arrested for soliciting before and they kind of just took advantage of that a little bit and they did the little extra little fill-ons and touched their boobs and areas that it wasn't supposed to be touched. And, yeah, um, and I think because of that, they just, this feeling of just, even thinking about calling cop is not, it's just a feeling that we wouldn't even go, it, it wouldn't even, a co- calling the cops ain't even gonna be an option because they're turning around and doing the same shit. Now, even though the Celeste Guap scandal has put yet another massive stain on the reputation of the OPD, I know there are some cops out there trying to do right by these girls, but here's the problem. Short of literally stopping an assault or rape or murder while it's actually happening, there's not much a law enforcement officer can do to help them out. Elizabeth ran into this dilemma constantly while she was running the Bontius Ray program. When I was talking to law enforcement officers, they were like, you tell me what you want me to do when I'm picking up a young girl on the streets and she's crying and asking me in desperation for help because someone is about to murder them. What the hell am I supposed to do? Where else are we supposed to take them? If they're being hunted down by their pimps, what other facility can, they, can we put them in other than in juvenile hall? This response right here, the lack of options for treating these girls as anything other than criminals, is at the very core of why child sexual exploitation is a problem that's so hard to eradicate. Let me just run down a quick laundry list why. Number one, juvenile hall is a major recruitment ground. Girls who end up there are more likely to get deeper in the game than get out. Number two, going through the criminal justice system is expensive. If these girls have court fees, lawyer fees, etc., how do you think they're going to earn that money to pay off the debts? Number three, once you have a criminal record, it makes it harder to get a job even if you do want to go straight. Number four, getting arrested results in many of these girls getting disowned or kicked out by their families. Once they get out of juvie and they've got nowhere to go, it just makes it even more likely that they're going to end up back with their pimp. Number five, to a large degree, the criminal justice system is not providing these girls with the real access to services. 
I'm talking about education, mental health, physical health, and legal support that could help them break out of the game if they wanted to. There are some services, but the system is broken. Fortunately, there has been some progress on this front in California, and I'll get to that in a minute. Stay tuned. Here's some good news. In September of 2016, Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill that says minors can't be arrested for prostitution anymore. From now on, in California, these girls will be treated as victims of sex crimes, not criminals. This is a step in the right direction, but there are still many challenges. Here's Elizabeth again, explaining why even the positive stuff like this legal reform, still leaves a lot to be desired. One of the issues that I have found really frustrating within the sex trafficking movement is that there is a savior complex involved. And in the push for more legal rights and representation and access to services, that we will often say they're victims, they're victims, they're victims, and leave very little room to talk about the fact that this is an incredibly resilient population, that there must be room for self-empowerment. One of the things that Elizabeth has learned through her many years of work with these girls is that they need to believe in themselves. They need to love themselves. And I know that may sound trite, but Put yourself in their shoes for a minute and just let that sink in. What Elizabeth was saying a minute ago is that when you're trying to help these girls build self-esteem, constantly calling them victims, that can be harmful too. That's why Bontius Ray has always been about, well, it's kind of hard to explain exactly, but a big part of it is just letting these girls have the kinds of experiences that a lot of us took for granted growing up. Here's one example. The girls take turns bringing in their mothers or other older relatives to teach the group how to cook a traditional Southeast Asian dish. The moms are encouraged to share something about their personal history with the younger generation. Here's what happened when Denise brought her mom, Sotavian. For a lot of a lot of um, young women, including myself, because I had my mom come and participate as well. It's kind of hearing these stories for the first time and kind of really finding out what your mother's journey has been to come here and then you know, to the United States and then also kind of hearing about you know, all that they went through, um, escaping landmines and seeing dead bodies um, as they're trying to make their way to the refugee camps. And, you know, it's, it's really, um, it really sheds a light on also filling this, this um, gap in something you didn't know about your own personal history. And I, and I, I could see that these girls were, were also, um, that they were experiencing that same, um, that same experience where they felt that they were learning about their history. And, and I think it made relationships stronger, you know. So Tavi also has fond memories of this experience. I asked her how she was able to relate to the younger generation, and her answer is really awesome. 
It says a lot. So that's where we'll leave things for this episode. I told one story. I told a kid that when I was young like them, I used to be, I hate school. I don't want to go to school. I just wanted to sleep. And then I, I wish I never go to school. And then one day when the Khmer Rouge, the communists come, they don't let you go to school. They want you to work like hell. And then I wish I could go to school. I we won't have to work that damn hard. <laughs> and then they say, really? I say, yeah. And then I wish that I could go to school. Thanks for listening to East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. The organization, Bonte Ray, is very grassroots. They don't need much money to get by, so donations go a long way. If you want to kick them some coins, go to the support page on their website. That's www.banteayserei.org. Real quick, before I get to the thank yous, I need to ask you, that's right, you, the person listening to this episode, a favor. The reason I'm doing this podcast is because I think stories like this need to be told and shared. One of the reasons why so many cops who were involved with the Slesk WAP scandal got away with a slap on the wrist is because not enough people are really paying attention to what's happening in Oakland. So my request is this, if you agree with me that stories like this need to get out there and deserve to be shared, please take a minute and share this story, either on Facebook or Twitter or just email it to somebody or even just spread the word next time you're talking with your friends. I'm not making any money off this show and I have zero marketing budget. So this is the only way stories like this will reach more people. If listeners like you spread the word, please, and thank you. For this episode, I want to thank everybody that talked to me. Monica Hong, Sotevi Tan, Denise Tan Agatep, and of course, my wife, Elizabeth C. I love you, baby. Big props go to Ollie Winston and Darwin Bond Graham the two investigative journalists who broke the OPD scandal involving Celesquap for the East Bay Express. Also, thanks to Dr. Kimberly Chang from Asian Health Services and Kate Walker-Brown, an attorney on the child trafficking team at the National Center for Youth Law. A few friends of mine listened to early versions of various East Bay Yesterday episodes and gave me some helpful feedback and advice. So thank yous also go out to Kai Milner, Nick Rahim, Sarah Shord, Shane Bauer, Brock Winstead, and Gene Anderson. All of the music on this episode came from Anatech, including a few tracks where he collaborated with Tab. Check out their beats on SoundCloud or Bandcamp, and please support these amazing artists. As always, I want to give a shout out to everybody who's working hard to keep Oakland history alive through projects like the Oakland Wiki, the Oakland Heritage Alliance, and of course, the local history room at the Oakland Library. And thanks again to Front Group Design for the East Bay Yesterday logo. Don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please, subscribe to the show on iTunes 
or SoundCloud and leave a comment or a rating. It means a lot. If you know someone who should be listening to this show but doesn't really grasp how podcast technology works, do a good deed today and show them how to listen. If you have feedback on today's show or you want to suggest a topic for a future episode, drop me a line on the social media channel of your choice. Oh, and there is one more reason why so many Cambodians ended up in Oakland instead of other parts of the United States. I'll let Sotavi explain. A lot of them was arrived to Chicago and some was other state, but due to the snow and cold, they couldn't live there. So that's how they moved to. Then they connect to each other and they say, oh, in here no snow better. That's what they decide to move here.